So this reading is from Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on a Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anna. Uh, just seeing those words, I'm reminded of when I was uh, getting ready to be ordained and I was in my second year and, at college and um, we, I went home and was invited along with all the others that were in the same place as me to uh, the bishop's house for supper. I, I remember this when I saw that word luncheon because it's just not a word we use anyway, is it? I don't really use the word supper. Well, actually, no, I do. In my household, tea was what you had in the evening Supper was what you had before you went to bed, like a bowl of cereal. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a few nods. Um, so lunch, tea, supper. So I, I was invited to the bishop's house for supper, and I was thinking, oh, that's a bit strange. Are we going to eat cereal? What's that about? So I, t I had a meal, uh, I had my tea, and I went to the bishop's house, and there was this massive array of food ready for us to eat. At that moment, I felt like the vicar of Dibley, so I guess it was preparing me, so that's quite good, isn't it? Anyway, that's got nothing to do with this evening, but I, thought I, I felt like I needed to tell you that story. Should we pray? <laughs> Heavenly Father, um, thank you for your word. Thank you as we continue uh, this series looking through uh, Luke's gospel that uh, you are teaching us so much through it. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, continue this evening that you would continue to speak, that we would hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, this passage is, always, is all about food. There is a slight link to my little story there. It is all about food. It's all about eating together. It's all about hospitality. But of course, it's a lot more than that, isn't it? Whenever there's a passage in the Bible, there's more to it than maybe first meets the eye. Um, and in chapter 14, we'll see throughout the whole of chapter 14, actually, that it's set uh, during one Sabbath at a dinner. 
Now, Luke doesn't actually say that, um, but it doesn't split it up. And um, he may have put it all together, but there's a sense that that's important, uh, that all of this happens in one thing. And that's a big setting in Luke, actually. We can look through the whole of Luke's gospel and see uh, this setting of dinner parties and meals. And this is actually the third occasion um, in Luke that Jesus has been invited as a guest to dinner, um, to a dinner hosted by a Pharisee. We can see the others in chapters 11 um, and chapter 7 as well. And in each occasion, Jesus um, challenges the sort of social conventions of the time. And I have to say, I'm wondering whether the Pharisees have worked it out yet. You know, they've, they've already known that he's been to two different Pharisees' houses for, for dinner and has been challenged. Yet he's invited a third time. Maybe there's other things going on. We know there are other reasons. And we read in this passage that um, Jesus is here at the house of a prominent Pharisee. More about that in a moment. But what Jesus does is he uses this um, dinner party to address the attitudes of those at the dinner. And we'll see um, in this passage, um, in the passage after hours, um, the one that will be read next Sunday, or no, the Sunday after in the morning, that Jesus continues with the theme of, um, of all of this with the parable of the great banquet. And what we find in this chapter is that we're reminded that there's a topsy-turvy sense of values in God's kingdom. Different values. Values that turn things on their head. I love this. One author talks about the Magnificat principle. I love that. That's nothing to do with cats. That's all to do with what Mary said um, and sang, possibly, um, after she found out that um, she would give birth to the Son of God, after the angel visited her. Um, here are just a few of those words from Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 50 to 53. Mary said these words, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the, sent the rich away empty. The Magnificat principle, the idea that um, throughout Luke's gospel, we see those words uh, coming to fruition we talked about um, right at the beginning of this series the way that, that Luke has this focus on uh, the poor, on the outcasts, on the widow, on uh, those who might appear to be on the margins of society. All those words that actually we see sort of in those words from Mary. And in this passage, Jesus speaks into this Magnificat principle. And we see Jesus speaking to three sets of people. So I thought the best way to do this would be to look at each set individually. So we're going to have a look at the lawyers and the prophet Pharisees. We'll have a look at the guests and we'll have a look at the host and how Jesus addresses each one of these groups. So let's start. It makes sense to start at verse 1, really, and the first part, verses 1 to 7, which is where Jesus addresses the Pharisees and the lawyers. Now, the thing to note here is the way things were 
at the time, the culture that was around at the time. The fact is that eating with others grew an important bond. You know, we know that, don't we? We know that when we eat with others, there's something that it grows within us. We sort of get to know each other. It's not really the eating, it's the time that we have with them, unless we think it's going to be cereal, when in which case, who knows? Um, I know that if I spend time with people over a meal, I get to know them better. I know those people I've eaten with here, I, sense, I feel like I know them better and I hope they know me better as a result. And that's very much the case. Um, that, that, that was the very much the case then, but it had more to it than that. Just hear these words from Psalm 4, at verses 1 to 9, which should hopefully be um, on the screen. They say that, this. Even my close friend, someone I trusted and who shared my bread, has turned against me. It's that sense there of the, the sort of the sharing and the relationship uh, built up there. Sharing food was a big thing. But also the culture around the time had this sort of big shame and honour culture where your rules, that the reputation, that the social status were really important and you couldn't be shamed. You know, honour was the, the really big thing. So who you ate with and where, who you invited to your house helped sort of cement your place in society. We'll think about that a little bit more when we think about the guests and the host. So here we have Jesus invited to the house of a very important Pharisee. That's the prominent Pharisee. Um, he was possibly a member of the sort of the Sanhedrin, so one of the leaders of the Pharisees. Actually, it's interesting, isn't it, to think that Jesus ate at the home not just of the, the Pharisees, but of those who were poor, those who were sort of on the margins of society. So countercultural just in that one thing, Jesus eating at both these types of homes. So countercultural to the world and the culture around him. Actually, I wonder how, how countercultural that is to the world we live in as well. You know, when we think about who we eat with, who you uh, will, you know, if, if you're sitting and going into a restaurant where you might sit or who you might invite to meals, maybe we'll think about that a little bit more. What we find in this passage is that Jesus um, finds himself being watched. Actually, the passage says being carefully watched. You know, so this isn't just a nice meal that Jesus has been invited to. He's being scrutinized for his behavior. That must be quite scary, mustn't it? Sort of sitting, sitting there, knowing that people are watching your every move. And what does he see? Well, we read in the passage that Jesus sees a man with an abnormal swelling. Now, we don't know what that might mean. It might be someone with a dropsy or something like that. Um, it's possible that it could have been um, liver disease, evidence of liver disease. But we can see that he is suffering. He is unwell. But notice what Jesus does. The thing he does before anything is he asks the Pharisees and the lawyers a question. And he says to them, verse 3, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Or not? Interesting that that's Jesus' question. We almost think that that could be the Pharisees asking him that question. Why does he do that? Well, think about the previous encounters that Jesus has had on the Sabbath in Luke. 
If you look back to chapter 6 and if you look back just to chapter 13 as well, we discover that in chapter 6, Jesus heals a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. In chapter 13, we discover that, um, as Andy looked at at last uh, Sunday morning, um, Jesus heals this woman crippled by a spirit for 18 years on the Sabbath. So Jesus is seen. He's seeing what they're doing. He's, they're watching him. Maybe they've even invited this sick man to the house to see what Jesus will do. I mean, Luke doesn't tell us that. But the fact that that the man is sent on his way after being healed suggests that that might be the case. But look at what the Pharisees and the lawyers do. Nothing. (laughs) They remain silent. And actually, both questions Jesus asks, they remain silent. They say nothing. Why on earth would they do that? They're here to catch Jesus out. Why do they do that? Well, if we look at those two passages that I've already mentioned, chapter 6 and chapter 7, we see that the Pharisees are angered, they're humiliated. So maybe they're silent because they don't want to lose face. Chapter 6, verse 11 says this, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So that's as a response to the healing of the man. And then in chapter 13, verse 17, when he said this, that's Jesus, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Maybe that's one of the reasons they don't say anything. But Jesus heals the man, and sends him on his way. But it doesn't stop there, does he? Because he asks another question. Again, that they reply to saying nothing. He asks this question, one I've never thought of asking myself, I have to say. If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? It's a strange question in some ways, isn't it? But the thing is, we need to understand a little bit of the sort of the culture and the law, the Sabbath law that was around. When we look at Sabbath law in the Old Testament and in the Mishnah, which is sort of Jewish writings, we discover that it's all about keeping the Sabbath holy and therefore doing no work on the Sabbath. But what we find out is that it's hard to know quite what they mean by work. I read this this week that apparently there are 39 categories of work banned on the Sabbath. But healing isn't one of them. So although healing was not mentioned, it was thought that it was best not to do it on the Sabbath unless it was a matter of life or death. Now, the man that Jesus has just healed wasn't on death's door, but he was suffering. Jewish law may forbid the rescue of an animal fallen into a well on the Sabbath, but if it's your animal... The law of mercy, or maybe better self-interest, will take precedence over laws. And what about the the child? Of course, you're not going to leave them at the bottom of a well. Surely, at that point, human welfare takes precedent over the Sabbath laws, doesn't it? And that's what Jesus is saying here. The Pharisees remain silent when Jesus asks them the question, maybe it's because if they answer yes then they're also admitting to, you know, oh, yeah, it's okay to break the law. But if they answer no, they appear to be heartless and not caring. So what Jesus is reminding us here 
is that love is greater than regulations. We need to hold on to that, don't we? Jesus shows us that again and again. Love and mercy are the way to go. Now, that doesn't mean the law should be ignored. How we live matters, but our lives need to be characterized by love and mercy. So what we see in the Pharisees and the lawyers and what Jesus says to them is that love is greater than regulations. Secondly, let's think about the guests, which is verses 7 to 11. If Jesus is eating at the home of a prominent Pharisee, it can really be assumed that those who are there may well be thinking of status. We talked a little bit about the sort of the culture at the time. That shame and culture, that shame and honour culture, showing off, of course, wasn't a social taboo then. So these people wanted to get themselves to sit in the most important places. And I have to admit, when I was thinking about this, and that sort of clamouring to sit in the most important place, all I could think about was hyacinth bouquet, uh, bucket, um, for as it's pronounced, and quite a lot of you were born after Hyacinth Bouquet was on the television. Um, she was a, a character in a program called Keeping Up Appearances, so if you were born after 2005, you probably no idea what I'm talking about. So I thought I would show you a one-minute clip of a few Hyacinth Bouquet moments just to demonstrate why I thought of her uh, when I read this passage. There's one thing I can't stand, it's snobbery and bonafishness. <laughs> People who try to pretend they're superior makes it so much harder for those of us who really are. <laughs> it's you, Violet. It's my sister, Violet. The one with the sauna and the swimming pool and room for a pony. <laughs> I hope that's a first-class stamp. <laughs> object to having second-class stamps thrust through my letterbox. When I turned on my tap this morning, it didn't look like my water. It's not as bright and sparkling as I'm accustomed to. It looks to me as if it's been used. <laughs> After all, it's only an accident of birth that I'm not someone important. <laughs> well, I am someone important. It's simply an accident of birth that I'm not even more important. <laughs> even aristocratic. There we go. It was partly because I just wanted to laugh at that, but it's brilliant because actually she demonstrates so beautifully um, what's sort of going on in this passage. You know, she really was a snob. You know, she was all about approval, all about status and importance, as we saw particularly in that last bit. And I have to say, I can imagine Hyacinth Bouquet, if she were a guest at this dinner party, uh, that, that she would have been one of the ones clamouring to sit right next to the host. But Jesus challenges everyone here. He's saying that we, we can't get the honour for ourselves. It's not, I want someone playing the horn out there. Anyway, never mind. That threw me. Uh, but Jesus challenges everyone here. He's saying that we cannot get the honor for ourselves. We cannot claim our own position. Um, it's, it's not a right. Of course, there's a lot of that around today, isn't there? That sort of culture of entitlement. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. 
When I was um, in my last post, that's a hilarious moment, isn't it? We just heard a trumpet and I say in my last post. But anyway, when I was in my last job, (laughs) um, I um, was trying to work out what God was calling me to next. And lots of people said to me, Eleanor, we think you could be a vicar of a big church. We think you could do this. We think you could do that. And um, I started to believe them. And I started to have that sort of superiority sense. I went, right, well, I'm going to apply for big churches as a vicar and, and all of this sort of stuff. But that's not what God wanted for me. And um, I had to work through that, and I've still had to work through that, that sense that I've been ordained longer than some of the other people who are vicars of churches around here because I've been an associate before. Um, and um, there's a sense of me want, you know, through that time sort of saying, yeah, but I, I can't do that role because, you know, that, that's below me. And it's not true at all, it's not. Uh, But that's how I felt, and that's partly because of what other people were saying to me, and I believed it. And I sort of had that, well, I want to sit next to the person at the front, um, at the front of the table, that is. Um, And it was only through going through uh, job applications and through various things that I ended up here um, in a role that wasn't what I was looking for, but I know it's right by God. And um, actually, I know that God has called me at this time to be an associate vicar, not a vicar, because it means I've got the space for creativity and doing things differently. And um, that's taken a time to work through. But that's the sort of thing that Jesus is getting here, getting at here. I am the person God has called me to be. It doesn't need me to be sort of uh, have a reputation I need to be where God has placed me. Luke 20, verse 46, Jesus says these words. Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. Jesus says those words very, very clearly. And in the parable that he tells here, the implication is that there's more than stuff about, you know, social status. But Jesus is teaching that there's something here about our relationship with God as well. The fact is, we don't have right to God's approval. We don't have a right to God's approval because of our position in church, because of our job, because of our role in the community, because of anything like that. Status is not a way that we find salvation We know we can't earn salvation or God's love or approval. You know, Romans um, says this, we have all fallen short. But God's love and approval and salvation are a gift to us. It's not earned. It's a gift of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. So honor is given by God, not by what we can get for it ourselves. That's something very different from the world around us, isn't it? So there we can see the kingdom of God turning the world upside down. Reminds me of the Beatitudes. Um, Here's um, Matthew uh, 5, verse 5 in the message. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. Jesus makes it pretty clear that humility is the key. And the linchpin linchpin of this passage actually is verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves 
will be exalted. And of course, humility is one of our values as a church, values that we've just reworked and just started to launch. And if you want to see what they all are, they're on the program card. Look at that for a link. Now, these aren't just random values. They're values of God's kingdom. Actually, humility is not just the value of God's kingdom, it's a fruit of the Spirit. And values um, that we're called to reflect because they're beautifully seen in Jesus. Jesus who humbled himself to death on a cross. Just listen to these beautiful words from Philippians 2. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Humility is so much greater than reputation. Not false humility, of course, but becoming more and more like Jesus so that we reflect his values and the values of the kingdom. I love these words that John the Baptist shares. He must increase, I must decrease. John 3 verse 30. So we've learned so far that love is greater than regulations and that humility is greater than reputation. Finally then, let's have a look at the host. So this is just the last couple of verses of the passage, verses 12 to 14. And in these verses, Jesus addresses his host about the motivation for inviting. Now, let me, let me just say, because when you read these verses, it feels a bit odd. You know, this isn't Jesus saying, never invite your family and friends for dinner, although I'm sure some of us might find that quite helpful at times. <laughs> it's about our motivation for inviting. He's seen here that the host is inviting important people. Jesus included, of course. And there may be a sense of wanting something from it, which when we think about it is really recognition. Being invited back... Uh, being invited back is, is wanting that recognition for the fact that you have invited them. And it shows that in your mind um, that, that, that they think you're worth inviting. That's the sort of sense of what Jesus is saying. And it's so easy, isn't it, to do things for recognition, for the benefits. I'm sure we've all done it, you know, maybe making decisions on whether to do something based on what recognition it might bring ourselves. In some ways, when I was looking at jobs, it was a little bit like that. I'm reminded of the episode of Friends, sorry, I'm not showing that this evening as well, where Phoebe and Joey have an argument about Joey's thought that there's no selfless good deed. Phoebe even lets a bee sting her. That's the level of what she does, thinking that she's doing a favour to the bee to make the bee look good, forgetting that bees die when they sting. Whoops. But of course, what they discover is that there is such a thing as a selfless good deed. As we've already seen, God's kingdom is one of grace. It's not about sort of the reciprocal stuff. We're not invited into God's kingdom because of what we've done or how important we are in the world's eye or because of the important people we associate with. We're invited into God's kingdom because of grace, because of Jesus, simply because of his generosity, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. 
And if you've read your term card, you will know that generosity is also one of our values. So what we could say is that generosity is so much greater than recognition. Because in generosity, we are showing the values of God's kingdom, focusing on others rather than our own recognition. And that's why Jesus says, don't invite your family and friends or your rich neighbours. It's because that can breed a need for repayment, for recognition. But of course, Jesus says here, there is repayment and recognition, just not in this lifetime. Right in the final verse, he says this, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus is saying we don't invite to get recognition, but to show God's generosity. And we will see God's generosity in eternity. And so I wonder whether there's a practical outworking of this, of these last verses in our own context. How easy is it, for example, uh, to invite people like ourselves to church or to an event or to those that we might think we might get something from? I don't know whether you've ever said these words, but I know I have. They'd make a good Christian. I hope everyone would make a good Christian. Jesus turns that on his head here. He challenges the host to invite those who are different, those in need, those on the margins. I wonder what that might look like for us. That's a challenge, but I wonder what it might look like. We may not see the outworking of that now. We might not see recognition from it, but don't forget the imagery of feasting in Luke, the celebrations when people come to God, the promise of the feasting to come. What a wonderful um, thing to do, to invite those who are different from ourselves. So what we can see in this passage is that in some ways we're expected to reflect God's generous values. This evening I've mentioned a couple of our church values and it's interesting that tomorrow morning I'm going into St Paul's school to talk about their values in, in an assembly there. Um, And uh, what I'm going to be saying to them is that values are about how we are on the inside making a difference to how we are on the outside. Maybe that's something for us to think about tonight. So as we follow Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, let's follow that call to grow more like Jesus so that his values, the kingdom of God values, impact everything that we do. To the point where love is greater than recognition, where humility is greater than reputation, and where generosity is greater than recognition. Let's pray. And can I invite the band to come back as well? I just want to encourage you to um, just be reminded of God's grace. We use that mnemonic, God's riches at Christ's expense.
be reminded that whoever you are, whether you're someone who has a really important job or whether you're someone who um, maybe um, feels like they're, they're not seen, to remember that God sees you and that he honours you all because of that grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Heavenly Father, I pray for those of us who need to be reminded of that this evening, need to be reminded that it's not about what, what we try and do. It's all about what has been done for us. But Father, we thank you also that in this passage we see some of the values of the kingdom of God. I pray that you would um, work in us by your spirit, bit by bit, that we may reflect your values in the way we live our lives. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are at work. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and speak into our hearts the very souls of who we are, that we might reflect the kingdom of God. And then finally, as we are reminded of looking outwards and, and uh, thinking of those who are different from ourselves, Lord, I pray that you would give us opportunities this week to share Jesus with those that we meet. Just for a moment, you might want to just think about the week ahead, where you'll be uh, tomorrow morning or uh, later in the week. Just place that place into God's hands and say, Lord, will you uh, help me to share the good news or just something of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you are at work in our lives, that we won't leave this place as we arrived because we have worshipped you because you have been at work with us. And we pray that you may continue to do that work in us until the, the day of completion. In Jesus' precious name, amen.